James was killed by Herod and Peter was imprisoned. The church was powerless. Uh, There was a heavy guard placed upon Peter. And the church had absolutely no options except to gather and to pray. And that's one of the beauties of this passage is, is that it teaches us that if our only option is to pray, we are not yet out of good options. And if there were any Pentecostals in the, in the house, they probably would have amened that. If, if our only option is to pray, we are not yet out of good options. And that is an exciting thing. That's a wonderful thing. As we're approaching this uh, series, we, we're looking at the idea of glory. And uh, we, we're understanding that God's glory is the ultimate trajectory of the universe. That the, the weightiness of his character is, is something that all of the created universe is is heading towards the moment when God will be all and in all. And so God is working everything for his glory. All good things point to the glory of God. And if you would think about that for a moment, every good thing that you've experienced, every good thing that God has created, every, you know, we, we went to a, on a kindy excursion to a farm and, and, you know, the cute little guinea pigs, uh, Flopsy and, you know, uh, well, I can't remember the other names, but they're all really cute guinea pig names. Th- th- those little things, they're created for the glory of God. Uh, even the, the alpaca with the, you know, the, the swept uh, Eche fringe. Uh, he had a piercing in his ear and his name was Elvis. Uh, it was a great little animal. He, he was made for the glory of God. All of the good things that you experience, you know, a great Indian curry, uh, a, a hug from mum, your first kiss, all of, sorry, I should keep it PG. All of those things point towards the glory of God. But did you know that our God is so good and so glorious that he doesn't even need something good to make it good? And I find myself always coming back to this principle, and I've spoken on it a couple of times. I call it the Genesis 50-20 principle. And if you can look up that verse, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it's where Joseph says to his brothers at the end of the story of Joseph, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And you know that God is so good, this is something that is uniquely and only God's ability, is to take something that is not good, that is done with poor motivations, that is inherently flawed, and to work it for his own glory. And that is an incredibly encouraging thing uh, for me, and I hope it is for you. But one of the things that we realize in this exploration of the idea of glory, everything's heading towards God's glory, that is the ultimate end of all of the universe, and that is going to happen either for your benefit, or at your expense. Because when you're someone who has come to know God, you've aligned yourself with his trajectory of the universe, you are heading in the same direction as all of the created world, then when God is glorified, it is for your benefit. But if you are someone who has not aligned yourself with God, who has not given your heart to Christ, then what you'll find is that everything you do is striving against the trajectory of the world, which is heading towards God's glory. And his glory will happen. That's, that's settled. That's not changing. And if you're not on that train heading that direction, then in fact, it will be at your expense. So God's glory will either be for your benefit or at your expense. And one of the things that we learned from last week's message is that even when it doesn't seem like it, the world is still God's. That can't change. Even when we look at the world and we think, you know, that God's not in this or God's not in control or this is going really off the rails, God is still in control and that reality underpins our attitude in the trial. 
It underpins our response when things are not going well. And so, let's have a look. We'll go through those uh, first uh, five verses again, just to get a bit of a recap. It says, from uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So this is a pretty dire situation for the church. They've got no options here. They've they've got no ability to, to rescue Peter. And uh, Peter, we should understand, has been in this situation before. He was arrested in Acts chapter 4 by the uh, religious leaders, and he was questioned there, and then they eventually released him, finding no grounds to to hold on to him. And then he's arrested again a chapter later in Acts 5. And this time, he's released miraculously. An angel comes and stands alongside him while he's in prison, and he said, you're free, and what I want you to do is go and do the exact thing that got you arrested in the first place. Go and proclaim the good words of this life, uh, on, in the same place that you were arrested before. And so Peter has been in this situation before. He's been delivered miraculously before. This is probably more than 10 years in the past for Peter that this has happened, the, uh, the first and the, and the second time, maybe even 12, 13, uh, maximum of, of probably 14 years prior. So this might explain why you know, Peter in this situation is actually able to sleep pretty soundly is that he knows that God can do something for him. And Peter had also received a prophecy from Jesus himself that he would, he would live to see an old age. So perhaps that's why he's able to sleep in this situation. But we should understand the degree to which Herod has gone to make sure that Peter is guarded and guarded well. It says that he's guarded by four squads of soldiers. Now, a squad is four soldiers. And let me tell you, four soldiers is plenty to hold one fisherman. But Herod has put four squads, which means 16 soldiers. Now, these are Roman soldiers, and these are professionally trained uh, vocational soldiers. Now, you and I understand that the military is your employment. If you're in the military, that's your job. That's what you do. But for the most part of history, that was not the case. Uh, up until, you know, some, uh, up until some uh, city-states in Greece, prior to that, there was no professional army. You might have been someone who was equipped and trained in a special skill uh, or in a special uh, weapon, but largely you led a private life and you were only called upon to fight uh, when there was war happening. But what made Rome so powerful was that they professionalized their army and they said, no, this is your full-time job. We train you not just to, to use your weapon, but to work as a group. We teach you tactics and we teach you warfare. And it's one of the things that made them so powerful as an empire. And then when there wasn't war happening, they found other things for the soldiers to do, such as guarding prisons like this. So there are 16 highly trained, ready killers looking after Peter at that point in time. And I might ask why. How did we expect Peter to make his way through 16 of these soldiers? Was he afraid that he was like a kung fu master or or something? trying to, you know, fight his way out. Even more than that, it says that Peter was chained to two soldiers, one on either side of him. So he would have had his, his hands chained, one to a soldier there and another there, and his feet chained, one to a soldier there, one to another there. How was Peter going to escape that? 
I mean, this is, we're talking about a maximum security, dangerous prisoner situation. He may as well have been Jason Bourne or Chuck Norris, the degree to which Herod is trying to keep him under wraps. And so we have to assume that maybe Herod had heard about his previous miraculous escapes, or maybe Herod is simply trying to make a, a show of his strength and his might, or maybe uh, trying to compensate for his uh, ego in that situation. But things are not looking good for Peter. Now, we should also understand that this took place during the days of unleavened bread. The days of unleavened bread is a Jewish feast which follows the Passover. And if you remember back to the book of Exodus, when Moses led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, one of the things that God did, saving them through an event which is called the Passover, where the Israelites had to take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, paint the blood above their doorposts, and then as the angel of the Lord came through the land of Egypt, the blood covered their house. The angel passed over, and they were saved. And so if you look in Exodus 12, we, we are instructed as to how Israel was to keep this festival. Firstly, there was the Passover meal, which occurred on the first day, or actually occurred before the first day of unleavened bread. Then there was a seven-day period where they were to keep this feast of unleavened bread. And what they were to do was they were to only eat unleavened bread, but they were also to remove all of the leaven from their house. So it's like a spring clean, get rid of all the leaven, and then a week of only unleavened bread. But they were also not meant to work. All that they were meant to do was to make enough food for themselves. And I struggle to imagine what this would look like in our context because it would, I mean, the kids' toys would just be absolutely everywhere. No one would be cleaning it up because, you know, we're not allowed to clean it up. And then all of the mums are suddenly realizing, actually, that sounds like a great week, to be honest. All I've got to do is prepare food for myself, tell my kids, no, 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 no that's not my responsibility for this week. That, I mean, where do we sign up? It sounds great to be Jewish for that week. But why is it significant that this was happening during the time of unleavened bread? The other thing that we should remember, or that we should know, is Exodus 12, 11 tells us that when they were to eat the Passover meal, right, so this is the night that Israel is about to be freed from Egypt and, and brought out of slavery. Uh, God instructs them, eat the Passover meal with your belts fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and with your cloaks on. Eat that meal fully dressed, because God's salvation is coming, you just don't know when. And so during that meal, they had to be ready for when God was going to come. And then for that week, as they ate the unleavened bread in this festival, they remembered their first season of coming out of Egypt. It was a season of utter and total reliance on God. They relied on him for their direction by day and by night through the desert. They relied on him for their food every single day, a fresh provision. And so I think it's significant that at this point in time, when Peter is in custody, that the church is in a season where they are remembering how desperately reliant on God they are as a people. They have no other options. Their, their money is not in any other banks. They're not hedging their funds. They, they, every egg is in the basket of God is our Savior. He alone is going to come through. That is the position that they're in. Not only that, but they, they have to remember that we need to be ready for God's salvation. We need to be ready for the moment that it comes. Peter and the church are backed into a corner, so the circumstances would suggest. But 
They have the power of prayer. And you know what a powerful tool that is. I think that if you and I really understood the power of prayer, we would not so often need circumstances like this to drive us there. If you and I really understood how powerful prayer was, then you and I would be praying as the first response. It doesn't matter whether you have other tools at your disposal. You might be able to solve a situation with your wisdom, with your charm, with your money, with your understanding of other people. But the person who prays first knows that the pinky toe of God, when roused to action, is more potent than anything you and I could ever do. So let's read on what happens from verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now, the first thing that I hope you notice is that this deliverance didn't come until the very night that Peter was about to be killed the next day. He was about to be taken out and publicly executed, and it is only at that moment and not a moment before that God steps in and provides his deliverance. You know, it is the case that often God's salvation and his provision and his deliverance and his instruction come not with plenty of notice, but they come at the final hour. Now, I should just make a quick distinction because I'm using the word salvation. And we have a technical understanding of, you know, salvation is in Christ is if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus as your savior, then you have salvation. Here we're talking about the context of deliverance as a person who belongs to God. At some point, we have to draw that line to say that there are people who belong to God and there are people who have not yet given their life to Christ. And so a lot of what we're talking about tonight will only apply to you if you've sat yourself in that trajectory of heading towards God's glory. You belong to him because you'll find that God is always working for your deliverance. God is always working for your salvation in those situations. But often it comes at the last minute. Don't you wish God did that a bit differently? Don't you wish he would give you a little bit of breathing space beforehand? Make you maybe a little bit more comfortable? I remember in my uh, bachelor days, I'd, it was, I was in my first year of living out of home, and uh, I, you, I had a job at a pool shop, which was a seasonal workplace. Lots of work during summer, not very much work during winter. And so we'd gotten to the winter months, and I didn't have any shifts for a little while, and uh, I was getting through my savings just in living expenses. And I looked at my account, and, and I said to God, I was like, you know what, God, I've got enough money left to my name for one week's rent, and I don't know where my food is going to come from. You're going to need to sort that out. And so that, I prayed that prayer on a Friday night, and then that Saturday morning the following day, my mum calls me and says, your dad and I were at a cafe this morning. We went out for breakfast, and we were just talking with the owner, and she was saying that she was short-staffed. And, you know, we mentioned that you know how to make coffee and you've worked in cafes before. And uh, anyway, she'd like to give you a job. Do you want to come in? 
And that was the next day after I had, I had prayed that prayer. So I took that job and it was God's provision for that season. But could not God have done that a little bit earlier? Why did he have to wait until my final dollar was committed to rent for the following week? What if your deliverance was not actually about your comfort? What if God's salvation in your circumstances is actually not about what makes you happy and feel in control? What if, in fact, it is not about you mostly at all? But it is, in fact, about God's glory so that he might be glorified when you are delivered. And you know the truth is that, yes, it is all about God's glory, but also it is about your faith. Because if you belong to God, he is always working to grow your faith. And so when his deliverance comes, it's not about your comfort or your safety, but it's about God's glory, and it is about your faith. And so I want to give you an encouragement. God's salvation often comes at the last minute. And if you have been in a season, if you have been going through a trial, if there are situations that you have not been able to solve, nor, you've, you, nor have you seen God come and solve it, can I say that you are not yet at the 11th hour? It might not feel like it. It might feel like the 11th hour was last week, a few months ago. But if you are still going if you are still persevering, then you are not yet at the 11th hour. Keep persevering. Keep holding on. God is good. And if you belong to him, his plans for you are good. Secondly, how do you pray in that situation? And I would say that there is absolutely nothing wrong with pouring out your heart to God, pouring out what you are feeling and pouring out what you know to be true and pouring out how difficult things are. God wants to hear that. He is like a, a father there welcoming you, wanting to give you a, a warm hug and say, everything's going to be all right. But perhaps a powerful shift in your mindset is going to change to actually start praying, you know what, God? You be glorified. This is hard but you have your glory. Be glorified in this trial. Be glorified in the solution. And God, be glorified in my response. You know, we've been in a, in a season of, uh, you know, looking for, or a house, for a house, and many of you have, have been through that, and you know that it can be a, a very stressful and anxious situation when you don't have a, a home to, to call your own. And it was only in preparing this message that I realized you know what, God, I can make that shift. And let me tell you that starting to pray prayers in that way was an incredible pathway to God's peace. To say, God, look, you know what's going on. I can't explain it in a degree more than you already understand, but I can pray that you would be glorified. I know that you're going to be glorified. And it was an incredible pathway to peace. And as of yesterday, that problem's been solved. So glory to God for that. Secondly, you can pray for your faith because God is working to grow your faith. So you can pray, God, please increase my faith in this situation. And I can promise you, you can trust me, but more than that, you can trust God. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. Now notice quickly, verse 7 
The, the, the quickly happens later in that verse, right? The angel, when, when he strikes Peter on the side and he wakes him up, he says, get up quickly. There's no time to waste. Don't delay. And at that moment, the chains simply fall off his hands. I mean, there was no you know, amazing flash of light. The angel didn't whip out some you know, secret agent, spy, laser. Uh, you know, Peter didn't suddenly have superhuman strength and just pull them apart. The chains simply submitted to the will of God and fell off his hands. The things that were binding him disappeared the moment God's salvation claim, uh, came, not a peep from them. And why do we have the angel here instructing him to get, get dressed? Now, obviously, there are practical things to that. He's got to be, be dressed, right, to, to leave. But I want to just point out the connection between what we've heard about in Exodus chapter 12 and what this says here. Because remember, in the Passover feast, they were instructed to eat that meal with their sandals on their feet, their belt around their waist, and their cloaks on. And here we have almost the same instructions given to Peter. And I believe that that's because readiness for God's salvation is a posture of faith. You don't have to know when God's salvation is going to come. You don't have to know what it looks like. But if you are in that season where you need God's salvation and you know that he's going to be glorified, then you can be ready for it when it comes. You can be dressed for that salvation when it comes. What does that look like? Well, I didn't have a good illustration for you until I had a great conversation with someone this morning. We were talking about houses and I was explaining how God had provided in our situation. And he said, you know, we've always found that God's done that with, with uh, our housing as well. There was this one moment when he was uh, selling their house and um, nothing was happening. There was no movement. There was no buyers on. And, and so he was desperately praying to God. He was on his knees every morning praying to God, saying, God, please, would you sort out the situation? And he just felt the Holy Spirit say to him, your house is sold. I don't want you to pray about this anymore. It's done. And he didn't have a buyer he didn't have anyone who was interested, nor, no contract, nothing like that. But God told him, it's sold, stop praying. And so he had to go around to all of his friends and they were like, how's your house going? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's sold. And they would say, oh, really great. How did it happen? Well, we don't have a buyer yet, but God told me it's sold. Let me tell you that that is readiness for God's salvation. That is a posture of faith. You don't have to know how it's going to look. You don't have to know when it's going to come, but you can be ready for when it comes. And what's the ultimate end of that? Well, God gets the glory. You know, sometimes uh, thinking that you know how God is going to do it actually works against you because God can see things in a way that we can't, and he can bring glory from a situation that we could not possibly imagine. And so I would encourage you, be expectant for God's salvation without placing expectations on how and when and what he's going to do. I would encourage you, never let your hope be squashed. Remember, if you can still pray, you are not out of good options. God is still working. And I encourage you, pray for God's glory and pray for your faith. So, what happens from there? We are up to... Verse 9, he's, Peter's just gotten dressed. The chains have fallen off his hands. 
And he went out and followed the angel. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And so Peter is one of those guys, just like me, who really struggles to wake up in the morning. The angel has struck him on the side, and he's kind of dazed. It takes me a good 15 minutes and, and the first sip of coffee, and uh, I, I maintain that I'm not accountable for anything said or done prior to that first sip of coffee in the morning. But this is kind of a fever dream for Peter. He thinks that it's, it's a vision or, or it's not real. It's not happening. It says, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And there when it says that they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate, it opened of its own accord. Uh, that's the Greek word automate, from which we get automatic. It's literally an automatic gate. Just opens up for them as they come through. But hang on a second. What about all that muscle that Herod had shown? What about those 16 soldiers guarding him? What about the two that were chained side by side? What about the sentries placed outside the door? Do they get a mention? Are they doing anything in this escape? Are they involved whatsoever? Not at all. They may as well have not even been there. I mean, were, were Peter and the angel like ducking behind uh, things to hide or were they somersaulting through like a field of, of laser beams or... or how did they do it? Did God make them invisible? Did God close the eyes of, the, of the, all the soldiers? Did he make them fall asleep? I don't know. But they may as well have been NPCs. And those of you who are young know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what an NPC is, it's a video game reference. Uh, it stands for a non-playable character, right? So it's somebody that you, they only wake up if you interact with them. Uh, you can't play them, otherwise they just sit there as kind of useless bits of code. These soldiers, the might of Herod's Roman uh, influence was basically useless code in this situation. How easy is our salvation for God? How big are our problems and yet how few moves on the chessboard it takes God to really sort that out? You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is about God's glory. Verse 11, Peter came, came to himself and he says, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued for me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Trust God and stay ready for his salvation. It might not look like it, but this is the way that our God works. Because it is about his glory, God could have come and he could have dealt with all the leaders of the world. He could have gone to political meetings and he could have uh, taken over the UN, but he didn't. He came as a humble child born out of wedlock in a stable, in a feeding trough. He spoke to broken people. He ate at the, the houses of the people who were the lowest in society because God has chosen that path to bring his salvation and to glorify himself. And that is no better demonstrated than through God's ultimate plan for salvation, which was through the humiliation of a cross. And so if we are people who belong to Christ, 
We have committed ourselves to a message that sounds foolish to the rest of the world because they're expecting some king to come, some big uh, event or, or explosion or whatever. But no. God's salvation is humble, and only a humble spirit can accept that that's how it's been done. And if you have not made that decision for yourself, if you have not decided, yes, I trust the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for me and for my sins, then you can do that tonight. You can put your faith and trust in him. You can align yourself with the trajectory of the rest of the universe, which is heading towards glorifying God, and you will find that at the end of days, instead of your expense, God's glory comes for your benefit. And the New Testament tells us, in fact, that not only does God glorify himself, but there is a glory that he gives to his church. Wow. And if the Holy Spirit is, is prompting you to do that, then I would encourage you to, to listen. You can do that in your seat. You can say, Jesus, I give my heart to you. So Peter's been delivered. His salvation was easy for God. All of the might and the strength of Rome against him meant absolutely nothing. And then, how is he received? From verse 12, when he realized this, he went, so he realizes that he's been saved and the angels disappeared. He's like, oh, I'm awake. First sip of caffeine, it's, it's working. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and kept saying, it, and they kept saying, it is his angel. And by the way, there was a, a bit of a funny belief back then that if you had a guardian angel, they kind of like resembled you. They, they were a bit of a, a lookalike, a doppelganger. Uh, so that's, that's where that comes from. But Peter continued knocking. He's just standing outside. He's listening to them going, Rhoda, what are you talking about? He's just knocking outside. And finally, they opened the door. They saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And I find this, this is kind of story that's going to get told around the barbecue for years to come. Hey, you remember that time uh, Peter, like an angel came and let him out of, the, out of the prison, and then he came and he was knocking at the gate, and then Rhoda came, and hey, hey, Rhoda, Rhoda, come, come, come. I'm just telling that story of the time you left Peter at the gate, and Rhoda's gone, oh, again. They, they were in disbelief. That was their response, disbelief. Hang on a second, hang on a second. They are in a week of a, of a feast where they are focusing on how they must be reliant on God, how they must be ready for the salvation. They are, they are praying for Peter at the time, and then when the salvation comes, they don't believe it. So often we look at these, these times and these characters and these people in Scripture and we hold them on this high pedestal and we say, you know, they must have had so much faith or, or God must have been so vividly present or, or whatever. And we make excuses for as to why that doesn't work. But I look at this verse and I think, well, actually, maybe they were a bit more like us than we think. Maybe they struggled with faith. Maybe they had doubts as well. The very thing they were praying for happened and they couldn't believe it. And so maybe when we look at a story like this, we shouldn't say, well, that's fine for them, but it won't happen for me. Maybe we should say, well, actually, if they can do that, I can have that kind of faith too. I find that a very encouraging thing. 
So let's finish off this section from verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So much for Herod. So much for all of the might of his Roman force against Peter, a lonely fisherman. The whole thing would have been an utter disaster. He had arrested a former fisherman, now preacher and church leader, put him in a maximum security prison and intended to bring him out publicly to execute him. But on the night before he was able to do that, Peter disappears. In Herod's mind, he's imagining coming out into the streets that the sun's risen. I'm, I'm sure that he would have had his alarm clock set very early, get up on, on his list, uh, on his to-do list for today, on his calendar. He's got kill Peter, and he's rubbing his hands together. He comes out uh, into the square, displayed in his glory, stands on a podium, and he's imagining uh, his subjects gathering around, and, and he calls out for the prisoner with his you know, pro- proclamative voice. Is that a word? I don't know. And, and he sees the excitement of these people as, as these 16 Roman soldiers process out into the square in their shining armor and all of their weaponry. And then at the end is a desperate Galilean, ragged and, and chained to two of the soldiers. He's fearful. He's terrified. He looks up at Herod and Herod gives him a knowing grimace. And then he's imagining the applause of his subjects as he squashes this insignificant Galilean fisherman come preacher with the might of his Roman power. Only problem is, none of it ever happened. And instead, Herod finds himself in an eerily echoey throne room, examining soldier after soldier, century after century, saying, what did you do? Where did he go? Who took him? And instead of the Galilean fisherman showing that fear and terror, it's his own soldiers who are saying, we don't know. We don't know what happened, please. And they're begging for their lives, don't. Kill us. And yet someone had to pay for Herod's ego. And it was his own soldiers. Why did Jesus tell his followers to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them? Was it in order for them to show how righteous they are in comparison? Does not praying for your enemies mean that you are really the righteous one? You're able to claim that high ground? Well, that's true to an extent. But when Jesus is on the cross, and when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, because that's the right thing for me to say, no. He says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. You know, all of this time, of all of the characters in this story, the one most to be pitied are the soldiers who were charged with holding Peter captive. We don't pity James, who died for the message of the gospel and went to be with Jesus in glory. We don't pity Peter, who got to see this miraculous salvation as he walked out of prison. We don't pity the Christian church, who had their faith encouraged by this miracle happening. We don't pity Herod, who has positioned himself against God. But we should pity the soldiers. Why? because they were set to oppose the prayers of the church. This whole time, we were under the impression that Peter was the one who was in the most danger, but in fact, it was the soldiers. 
Because they had no idea that what they were doing was in direct opposition to what the church was praying. We need to be more like Jesus in this. Because when he was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he, he was not taking the moral high ground. He was taking pity on these people who have no other option, on these people who don't realize that they are fighting against the trajectory of the whole universe. And you know, maybe there's been someone in your life, in your workplace or in your school or in your university who's been railing against you, who's been, who's been opposing you, who's, who's been discrediting you. Maybe you're not being listened to. Maybe you're being pushed down. Maybe you're being marginalized. Maybe they're making your life difficult simply because you believe in Jesus. And maybe you've been struggling to sort of hold on and go, God, I just want to be faithful in this situation, but it's so hard. You realize actually they, they need prayer because they are opposing a servant of God and you're in a position where you can pray, which means that you, are, you, you hold the power in that situation. And if you take pity on that person, watch what changes. Instead of giving them tokenistic, uh, turning the other cheek and, and, and praying for them because you know it's the right thing to do, imagine if you actually pitied that person, if you actually loved that person and realized what they were doing. They don't know. And if you were to show them that genuine love, watch what changes. Because there's no answer to that. There's no answer for someone that you are you know, opposing and, and rejecting and you know, figuratively slapping across the face and for them to actually just love in return. There is no response that they can make. You watch what happens. We should be more like Jesus in that. So let's summarize. And um, band, you guys can come on up. Firstly, we need to remember that God remains in control. That doesn't change. Even when it doesn't look like it, God remains in control. And as a result, we should pray for his glory. That should be our response. And this could be the shift that someone needs tonight. If you've been struggling through a, a circumstance, my deep desire is that this might be a significant shift in your experience in that circumstance. Because when we were in our, the, the situation where we didn't know, you know where our house was going to come from, and we could have worried about that for a long time, but it was the moment we shifted our mindset and started praying, God be glorified in this, that the peace came, and eventually the solution came. The solution came actually a couple of days after we started that prayer. Whether that's connected or not, I don't know. I probably could have prayed that prayer weeks ago and had just a much more relaxed couple of weeks. But I pray that this is something that, that is going to shift for someone here tonight. Secondly, God is the God of the final hour, and so we should persevere. Hold on. Hold on. God will come through. You will not be let down. Thirdly, we need to dress for salvation, which is to take a posture of faith. Now, this shouldn't be presumption. We shouldn't place expectation. God is going to do X, Y, Z. We should just say, I don't know what God's going to do, but I know he's going to do it, and I'm ready for when it comes. Take a posture of faith. Fourthly, when salvation comes, don't be surprised. Believe it. And glorify God in all things, friends, 
We need to be glorifying God because that is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate trajectory of the universe. And so let's get on that wagon. And we're going to sing in a moment. And we're just going to pour out our hearts and say, God, you be glorified. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. You are still going to work it for your glory. And we submit to that. And lastly, friends, this is a lesson you're going to be reminding yourself for the rest of your life on this earth. If you can pray, you have the power. If you are in a position where you can still pray, you are not out of good options because you are rousing to effect the power of God, which is bigger than anything that you could have hoped to contribute. Would you close your eyes? Lord God, your ways are so much higher than ours. And somehow you are able to use the brokenness of this world to bring yourself glory in ways that we could not possibly predict or understand. And so, God, we look at our lives, we look at our situations, and we say, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. This doesn't seem to line up with a good God. This doesn't seem to line up with, you know, what I was expecting or, or how it should pan out or, or, or why, you know, my life looks different to that person. That person doesn't have the problems and the struggles and the difficulties that I do. And yet, God, we choose to say tonight, have your glory. Have your glory. God, be glorified in this trial. God, be glorified in the salvation that's coming. And God, be glorified in our response. And we come to you now, Lord Jesus. We come and we respond. We lift up your name. The name of Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved but the name of Jesus. And if you need to make that decision tonight, if you need to commit your heart to the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to to come and see me up the front here. I'm going to be in the front, um, down on the right-hand side. You can make your way around. And we can just pray a very simple prayer together. Put yourself on the trajectory that the whole universe is heading, which is to glorify God. And we're going to do that right now. We thank you. Would you stand?